Welcome to a Monday night edition of Tisky Sour. Some big stories tonight. We're talking about the protest wave that has erupted across China and a rebellion within the Conservative Party. Not as dramatic as the rebellion in China, but still consequential for us at least. We're also talking Matt Hancock and why Just Stop Oil are right. To guide you through those stories, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Very well, Michael. Two authoritarian regimes facing challenges. That of Rishi Sunak and that of Xi Jinping. Protests have erupted across China against the zero COVID policies which have been in place across the country for more than two years. The immediate spark for this wave was an apartment fire in Urumqi in the Xinjiang region of China. That fire killed at least 10 people and lockdown measures which were in place in the city have been blamed for failings in the rescue effort. Now, these are protests in Shanghai, which earlier this year was itself subject to a severe city-wide lockdown. Now, people there were chanting, down with the Chinese Communist Party, down with Xi Jinping, lift lockdown for Xinjiang, lift lockdown for all of China. They're also singing the Internationale. In Beijing, meanwhile, students have been protesting, holding up pieces of blank white paper. That's as a protest against censorship. To find out more about this wave of protests, I spoke earlier to Yuan Yang, the Financial Times' Europe-China correspondent. I began by asking her to lay out the recent developments that have prompted this wave of protests. I think a few things have combined to cause this current wave. Firstly, there's the migrant workers who were at the Apple assembly plant in Zhengzhou in central China. That's the biggest factory that makes iPhones in the world. And there were you know, thousands of workers who were stuck there under this closed loop management system. They were complaining of, well, firstly, not being paid bonuses they should have been paid while they were being quarantined, but all sorts of health and safety measures and conditions going wrong at that plant while they were effectively in this kind of quarantine situation separated from the rest of the world in order to keep up production going. And there have been mass walkouts there. Now, so that's, that's migrant workers in central China. And then we have in Western China, in the region of Xinjiang, where there's been of course, a very bloody and strict crackdown on the Uyghur Muslim minority, a fire in a high-rise building that killed at least 10, perhaps more people. And residents there are blaming the local government's imp- implementation of COVID measures, saying that they stopped, th- those kinds of measures stopped people from leaving quickly enough and stopped fire engines from getting to the, to the door of the compound in, in good time. So there are a number of measures that have really ignited I think the national wave that we're now seeing, which is concerns about personal safety, concerns about livelihoods, being able to make living while being, while there are so many lockdowns going on. And it's really combined lots of different groups of people across society behind this one push to say we want an end to this policy. How representative do you think the protesters are? I mean, obviously, this is much bigger than the protests we're used to seeing in China. But is it potentially the case that there's a silent majority that are very happy that zero COVID is still in place? I would have said that two years ago at the start of the COVID pandemic in China, there was a majority in favor of the policy and the policy was extremely successful at guaranteeing the freedom and security of the majority of people who were not locked down and the minority of people were in lockdowns in cities like Wuhan. Now, that was when the variants that were spreading were much less contagious and also much more deadly. And now two years on from that, people are really asking the question, you know, how much longer can these lockdowns go on for? And they're also seeing the costs and benefits, you know, turning more negative because more of China is in lockdown. And these lockdowns are are much more frequent and much more erratic and unpredictable for people. So I think nowadays there is no longer that silent majority. There are, of course, 
um, people who still are in favor of the policy. I would say particularly the elderly um, living in remote parts of China that have not seen a single case. Um, my own grandparents, for example, in, in the mountainous southwest of China, which is quite rural and remote, they don't have to travel. They don't have to go out to the factories to work. They don't have to you know, mingle in the cities. But that, that population, which is the most vulnerable from COVID, is certainly a minority. I think for the vast majority of people, they've seen their own livelihoods crumbling away with the economy and with the lockdowns. And there are more and more people, I think, that are united and feeling they're suffering now from the policy. How is one able to sort of gather what the public mood is? Is, is there polling on sort of people's views of zero COVID? Such a good question about gathering public sentiment in a, in a very authoritarian system. So no, there's no public polling. The, the party, the Communist Party does its own polling. It's heavily, uh, you know, classified information for, uh, for, for the leaders. I think the best way of trying to get an assessment is to speak to a range of people who live across China from, you know, the industrial, like the industrialized Rust Belt, northeastern regions down to the, you know, down to the south uh, coast where lots of people work in the private sector, round to the kind of west, which is more remote and more rural and, and more impoverished. I, I think you just have to have as many sources from a wide range of people as possible. Journalists tend to live in the big cities like I did. I lived for six years in Beijing when I was there with the Financial Times and there are journalists in Shanghai and some in Shenzhen. But the views of people within the city, the big cities, is not representative of, of China as a whole. Although that's, of course, you know, the metropolitan China that you see when, when you see, you know, images of, of skyscrapers and when people go on travel, go and travel to China, that's probably the China that you see as well. And where do you see these protests going? Do you think that Xi Jinping will sort of try and speed up the, the exit plan from zero COVID? And I suppose more fundamentally, is there an exit plan from, from zero COVID? A really key consideration for the government is image, and it does not want to be seen to be backing down in light of protests. And this is always a difficult issue for you know the push and pull of public demonstration, public protests in China, because in a way, of course, a public de demonstration is a really effective way of conveying anger and dissatisfaction and the kind of mass scale of that, so that this local government, the central government, sits up and takes and pays attention. At the same time, though, the government does not want to give people the idea that organized protest and demonstrations work. So there's this really difficult uh, situation that the government is in where they now know the full strength of people's dissatisfaction and anger. But if they're seen to climb down really publicly, then they don't want to be seen as weak. They don't want to open the door to protests, more protests on a larger number of issues. We've seen a few climb downs in specific cities, for example, in Urumqi, which is the capital of Xinjiang region, where the fire happened. The local government has now declared victory and said, you know, we've achieved our COVID zero target. So that means we can start to release the lockdown gradually in a few stages. You can see that as a U-turn on its policy. You can also interpret that as a consequence of the huge demonstrations that happened uh, in, in the capital, in Urumqi. And in small, I think I would say in, in certain areas, in smaller areas, local government authorities may be able to climb down quietly without making a big song and dance about it. They can declare victory. They can say, we're now going to slowly lessen the lockdowns. And the residents will know why that was. But they're not going to say, you know, in response to the protests, we have these, we're, we have these, these policies that are a direct result of the protests. The bigger question is what that means in terms of the healthcare system and the actual spread of COVID within China, which for the last two years has really been contained. 
There are researchers from Fudan University in Shanghai who published a paper in Nature estimating that there'd be over a million deaths potentially from the lifting of zero COVID restrictions. And that's partly because of the very low vaccination rate among the elderly. So that's clearly a very high priority for the party to resolve if it wants to get out of the zero COVID policy right now. What risks are the protesters taking? Is what they're doing illegal? Are they facing arrest? What's going to be the response from, I suppose, the security state to to this wave? Well, there are a number of criminal and civil charges that the government can bring against protesters. Um, you know, everything from subversion of the state, which is a terrorist crime for the protesters who are calling for uh, President Xi Jinping to step down. Bear in mind that President Xi has already you know, p- placed himself in the Communist Party constitution as the core of the party. So calling him to step down is not too far away from calling for the Communist parties to step down, which would be seen as subversion of the state. And there's, you know, all the way down to more gradual and small, let's say kind of everyday misdemeanors, like the the very typical one, which is often used against activists, is called uh, picking quarrels and provoking trouble, which is a phrase that has been you know, used against feminist activists, used against human rights lawyers in China. You know, just a number of, and it's almost, it's, it's kind of like a generalized antisocial behavior type uh, charge that you can bring against almost anybody for any reason. Um, so there are huge numbers of like legal uh, tools that the that the government could use to prosecute protesters if they did want to. Now the question is, on such a mass scale of protest, do they want to do that? And would they do they risk making martyrs out of people who've been prosecuted, especially when there are so many people taking to the streets from from a cross section of society, from you know urban elites to students to workers in, in factories. I think the the risks that protesters are taking are really are very high, but also that just goes to show how much resentment and much kind of popular solidarity and anger there is about over the policy. That was Yuan Yang speaking to me earlier today. I mean, because this is such a, I mean, incredibly interesting story, incredibly significant. Aaron, I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on it. You know, I thought it was a super interesting interview there with Yuan. It's congruent with what I've sort of heard, which is there's a sea change nationally in China, and that, that idea of the sort of silent majority being in tune with Beijing and actually sort of visible dissent, which you often see go viral through social media, isn't necessarily reflective of the broader body politic. Perhaps that is, well, not perhaps, that is seemingly changing, you know, quite significantly. I mean, what interests me, Michael, is I don't quite know the public policy arguments that the Chinese Communist Party have in regards to continuing with zero COVID. I mean, it's something we've spoken about privately. Do they look at, for instance, productivity losses with regards to long COVID and think actually it makes sense for another year or two to lock things down and adopt a very different approach on this to say what you have in Europe and the US? I would like to see their reasoning. I would like the Chinese Communist Party to show their working when it comes to why they have such a different approach. Because I struggle to believe, and I could be wrong, but I struggle to believe it's entirely done out of intellectual laziness, or we did this during the crisis and the height of the pandemic, we'll keep on doing it. I feel like there must be more of an explanation behind it. Sadly, Michael, you know, neither of us are Mandarin speakers and we don't have, uh, you know, well, well-seated sources within the uh, Politburo. So we don't know. But uh, for me, that is a really interesting key question. What is the, the public policy reasoning behind this, right or wrong? And by the looks of it, it looks like it's very wrong. But I'm intrigued. No, I mean, it is super interesting. I mean, 
I always think the best way to approach sort of Chinese politics is with humility, because I think often in the West, sort of people look at this, oh, it's just an authoritarian, terrible regime. Let's hope it falls. It's a bit like, it's a bit more complicated than that. Also, it's had extraordinary achievements. I think it's kind of worth trying to understand what's going on instead of just sort of imposing our own frameworks on, on, on everything and saying, oh, great, this is a protest. It's going to overthrow everything. I, I, I imagine um, the sense I get is that people, you know, shouting overthrow Xi Jinping, overthrow the Chinese Communist Party, um, I haven't read anything that suggests that's particularly representative. So I think maybe some people are getting a bit overexcited there. The zero COVID policy one, though, as again, I think I, I come to that with humility as well. I mean, we've talked before, I suppose there's two ways of talking about this. Is it a sensible policy? And there, I suppose the argument for it being a sensible policy could be, you know, there's still a lot we don't know about COVID. There are still long-term consequences of it that, you know, we're, we're only just starting to understand. And they're not catastrophic. I mean, obviously COVID was catastrophic, but I say this not to be scaremongering. I'm not saying like, oh, we're all going to drop dead in 10 years time because we got COVID in 2020 or 2021. But it does seem as if having endemic COVID-19 is potentially making us all just marginally less healthy, right? Which isn't ideal. So if you can keep it from circulating until we massively improve the treatment for it or the vaccines for it, et cetera, et cetera, then I think there could be an argument for it. It seems at this point that potentially it's more of a political argument for why they're keeping it. And what Yuan said there, I think, is interesting in terms of older people and younger people. And potentially what we're seeing in China now is a big division between the people whose interests are in keeping zero COVID and people whose interests aren't in, in zero COVID. We often talk in this country about how you know policies that we adopted during the COVID-19 pandemic were mainly focused on sort of stopping the young moving about, right? People who were at least at risk from, from COVID-19. But obviously because you know, there was never a, well, we, uh, let's say we, we, we had foregone the option of avoiding COVID-19 altogether fairly early on, then the government didn't have to make a, a proactive decision, which caused over a hundred thousand, mainly older people to, to die of COVID-19. Now, China is in a position or the Chinese Communist Party is in a position where to decide, let's have an exit wave. They are deciding that they're maybe going to sacrifice a million older Chinese people. So you can see why they don't want to do that. Like it's, I, I don't think this is just sort of the megalomania of one leader. I can see how there is a, you know, there is a genuine public policy challenge here. Any final thoughts, Aaron? I don't think either of us claim to be experts in this, but I mean, it's, it's very interesting nonetheless. I feel like everyone should be able to, to comment on it, even if we don't have a degree in, in Chinese politics or speak Mandarin. I thought Yuan was, uh, was a great interlocutor in that respect. But like you say, Michael, I, I do think it is really key here. You know, you do, when you look at the Chinese Communist Party, it is, it is a highly empirical political organization. Generally speaking, there are reasons for why they do things. You know, it hasn't always been that, you know, that way. You can look, for instance, at the great leap forward with Chairman Mao. You know, there were, there were, um, there were targets that people had to meet with regards to killing sparrows and uh, locusts. Uh, I think the, 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 the governing class of China has moved on slightly since then. So, yeah, they're trying to bring sort of scientific methods towards government. I'm not saying it always works, of course. But this, this kind of default of saying, oh, stupid China. Look, they can't administer things properly. Well, 700,000 people died of COVID in Brazil. There, there are a few things we need to weigh up here. Um, I imagine we will be coming back to this story for now. Let's move on. It's been just over a month since Rishi Sunak became prime minister, but despite promising to unite the party, he's already facing three Tory rebellions. 
Now, two of them involve the new levelling up and regeneration bill. It was due to have its third reading in Parliament this week, but it's been delayed after a Tory backbencher rebellion threatened to overturn the government's majority. So what are the issues at play? Well, the first involves targets for building new homes. In the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, Boris Johnson pledged to build 300,000 new homes each year. That target is now at risk after around 50 backbench Tory MPs signed an amendment that would have forced the government to scrap mandatory house building targets for local authorities. Therese Villiers is the author of the amendment. She appeared on Sky's Sophie Ridge on Sunday. What's the idea for the amendment, first of all? The amendment is to return local control over planning decisions um, to local communities. These targets, I think, are based on 2014 out-of-date population figures. They're disproportionately um, pushing for delivery in the crowded southeast. And to meet those targets uh, in the southeast, there's a danger that we essentially risk making the same mistakes as the 60s and 70s with high-rise, high-density blocks, greenfield development, all of which would be damaging to our environment and the quality of life of many people. The government's now set to pull the vote completely tomorrow. Do you see that as a victory? I think it is an important victory, and I really welcome the government's decision on that because they were sending a clear signal that they wanted to look at these issues again, and the Secretary of State has subsequently been out on the airways saying he really understands our concerns and he wants to, to try and provide some reassurance. So I hope that does happen. Villiers' constituency is Chipping Barnet in North London. It's a pretty well-off place. The number of children living in poverty is well below the national average, and the average house price is £602,000. So are these Tory MPs turning against younger people in need of homes in favour of their older, richer and nimby voters? That's a question Ridge put to Villiers. I just want to read you a quote by Sajid Javid, who's written in today's Sunday Times. He says he's dismayed by your amendment, and he says it would put meaningful policy into reverse. We risk creating a generation that turns its back on the politicians who failed them, a generation that, without any capital of its own, becomes resentful of capitalism and capitalists. Has he got a point? Uh, I, I disagree with, with Sajid's approach. I, I think you know future generations won't thank us if we destroy the environment in, in the cause of building new homes. We can deliver new homes. We can do it in a sustainable way with the consent of local communities. And uh, I think the better way to do that is to remove these top-down targets and give more power agency and responsibility to local communities. So Billy is claiming there that she wants to protect the environment for the next generation. Her voting record says something different though. She's voted in favour of fracking and selling off England's forests and against amongst all measures or against almost all measures to reduce climate change. The second rebellion also concerns the environment and onshore wind farms this time. So during the Tory leadership campaign in the summer, Sunak pledged to keep a de facto ban on onshore wind farms in place. That was one of the three highlights he picked out from his energy strategy. That ban was brought in originally by David Cameron in 2010. And while Boris was in favour of overturning it, he bowed to pressure from MPs to keep it in place. When Liz Truss became Prime Minister, though, her disastrous mini-budget actually promised to allow new onshore wind farms to be built. Of course, she wasn't around long enough to see that through. But now the Times has reported this. At least 30 Tory MPs, including Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, now back an amendment to the levelling up and regeneration bill. 
that would force the government to end the ban on new onshore wind farms. Yesterday, Labour announced that it would support the amendment, which is led by Simon Clark, the former levelling up secretary. Labour's backing means that only five more Conservative MPs would be needed to wipe out the government's majority. Other rebels are actually members of the cabinet, including apparently the levelling up secretary, Michael Gove. If that's true, he'd be backing an amendment to his own bill. And now it looks like the prime minister might be forced to back down. Business Secretary Grant Shapps appeared on Sky News where he was confronted with this. Simon Clark, former levelling up secretary, Michael Gove, who is now the levelling up secretary, uh, both backing, forcing the government's hand on onshore wind and um, Simon Clark saying they're five MPs away from forcing the government to do what they want. I, I don't recognise it in those terms at all. Simon Clark um, has put in an amendment, uh, which I haven't studied all the ramifications of yet, but actually essentially saying exactly what I said to you, which is that local people ought to have um, a very, very keen say in this, which is indeed government policy. There, there are always different ways to skin a cat, as it were, um, but we'll have a close look at, at what's being um, proposed. But uh, sounds, like, sorry. sounds like the government might be backing down on this one. No, I, exactly what we've said all along. That Rishi Sunak said the other week, uh, where onshore happens, it needs to happen with local um, he agreement. He said he was against it. He said he was against any further onshore wind. He said that I, to I me think, during the summer. I think you're being far too black and white about this. I've no, always said... Yeah, I, I, I absolutely look, pressed him on it, and he said he was against it. He said he'd spoken said, the day before, and he said he was against onshore wind. So, so I've always said, and indeed he has always said, where onshore wind happens, it needs to happen with local consent. Obviously, more onshore wind would mean better energy security for the UK, and it's popular with voters too. This YouGov poll from October shows that 77% of all voters and 73% of Conservative voters are in favour of new wind farms in their local areas. Only 17% of voters would oppose new onshore wind. It looks like Sunak is likely then to be forced into two U-turns in a single week, a fact that will please Boris Johnson and his supporters. In a separate article this weekend, The Times reported this. Johnson's challenge in particular represents the beginning of a new phase in their relationship. Until now, the former Prime Minister had been publicly supportive of Sunak, but allies say he will become more robust in his interventions in defending what he sees as his legacy issues, including levelling up. His supporters are convinced that Sunak will fall and that Johnson will replace him with the May local election seen as a focal point. We're not going quietly, one backer of Johnson said. They won't be able to get any legislation through. Aaron, that idea that Rishi Sunak is going to fall and Boris Johnson is going to replace him seems a little bit far-fetched. But there is a very interesting, I think, factional struggle going on in the Conservative Party now. I think the Boris Johnson side is sort of trying to pose this as being the pro-growth and the anti-growth coalition. So the pro-growth Tories want onshore wind. They want to build new houses. They want planning reform. And the, the anti-growth Tories, what they are is essentially the representatives of British NIMBYs, so people who say not in my backyard to any development. They don't want housing targets. They don't want onshore wind. And this is now, we're sort of told, a, a new factional battle, dividing line within the Conservative Party. How significant do you think this could be for the rest of this Tory government? It's a major problem, Michael, because look, it's a while back now, but do you remember the by-election Amersham and Chesham, which was entirely about NIMBYism? And yes, of course, there was a national backlash against Boris Johnson, but the Liberal Democrats came through on that because of planning applications regards to infrastructure with housing and so on. People just simply did not want it there. Now, 
If you look at how the Tories have tried to build an electoral coalition since 2010, it has been clientelistic. It has been big business, older voters, hence the pension triple lock, uh, and homeowners, particularly in its southeastern kind of heartlands, uh, at least until 2019 when it had that breakthrough because of Brexit, really, and the so-called Red Wall. But before then, th- those heartlands were critical for them, the home counties. And I think this is one of those policy areas where it sounds nice to say, yeah, we want growth. We want to build more houses. We want to, you know, build on the green belt. But actually, you've got 50, 60 Tory seats in play, which would always be a challenge for them. They would never really want to do that. But given the fact they're also looking at a, a spanking in the red wall from Labour, you know, all the, all the polling right now shows them losing dozens of seats up there too. It would be very strange and surprising for them to be perceived as letting down their, their base to such an extent. So yes, we need housing in this country. We particularly need housing in the Southeast because, of course, that's where all the growth happens. It's not a good thing, but that's just how it is. And hence, that's where an overwhelming sort of majority, proportionally speaking, of housing demand is. It's in the Southeast, not just in London, Greater London, places like Luton, Reading, bits of Kent, they're growing really quickly. And that's where we need those homes. And what I find really funny, Michael, is the way that um, Teresa Villiers talked about the whole thing. You know, we don't want to be building over our countryside. Uh, yes, we need homes, but we shouldn't be destroying nature. Her constituency is High Barnet, Michael. They have an H&M there. They have a Robert Dias on their high street. I've been there. You know, the way she's talking about it makes it sound like the Outer Hebrides. Personally, I'm of a view that we should actually build as much density in seats exactly like hers, as much density as possible. Skyscrapers. Every single brownfield site in, um, in Chipping Barnet or High Barnet should be, should be built upon. And then, yes, if we're serious about meeting climate targets and, and ecological restoration, we probably need to revive rainforests and marshes in places like Wales, in the Scottish Highlands, in the southwest of England, for instance, in, in, uh, in the moors. So I, th- I find it a very strange calculation. So we need to preserve nature when you're talking about somewhere in Zone 4 London. She means a golf course. That isn't nature, Teresa. No, I think that's so well put. I mean, there's just this bizarre obsession with saving fields. Like what I, what I think we need in this country is very dense cities and then big areas of wilderness. Like that's, they're two very functional land uses, right? So big, dense cities, that's where we can all live. I like living in dense cities. I like being able to, to walk to see lots of my friends or to different interesting things. Then we also need, for a number of reasons, to rewild vast swathes of, of the country. But instead, you've got this weird Tory coalition that just want everything to be a field. Everything has to be a field. The fields don't serve that much purpose, really. Um, I want to stick to this topic of housing for a moment. So we've got a couple of interesting comments coming through. So in the YouTube chat, Darkness Asunder All says, unless or until we regulate the housing market, it's literally pointless to build new houses as they won't help anyone but the already wealthy. And Oliver Kant with a fiver says, highly recommend reading Municipal Dreams by John Bowton on the history and need for mixed-use public housing. I concur with that. I was interviewing John Bowton Um, for a podcast recently, very articulate guy. This debate is huge now at the moment. So it's between Yimby's, Yimby's Yes in My Backyard, which is essentially sort of a faction of the Conservative Party, Nimby's, which is a faction of the Conservative Party as well, and then left-wing people who say, yeah, building houses is good, but also it matters who builds them 
and what price they are rented out for or what price they are sold for. Incredibly interesting, incredibly consequential debate, I think. I do agree that, you know, unless we are building more social housing, then building more housing, you know, letting the market build more housing is, is not going to solve the problem. It might make housing slightly cheaper, but it's not going to solve the problem until we have a big diversity of house builders, have some private developers, have councils building loads, have housing associations building loads. But the Tory, the, the internal Tory argument is essentially against NIMBYs who don't want anything to change and YIMBYs who want just enough to change that they can get on the housing ladder. So they want just enough to change that they can get on the housing ladder and then everything else can stay exactly the same. So I, 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 I don't want either of these factions to win. What I want is for the left to come through and to you know, reinvigorate the, the building of, of council housing across the country. Um, we are going to stick with this story of internal conservative flame wars. First, though, while Rishi Sunak can't seem to get his ducks in a line on climate policy here at Navarra Media, we're proud to stock a range of sustainable products in our merch store. Our clothing range uses eco-friendly inks, organic cotton, and plastic-free embroidery in sizes from double extra small to five times extra large. And all posted to you in recycled packaging. Christmas is coming up, so if you're looking for a gift for a fellow lefty, check out the links below this video or head to shop.navaramedia.com. Let's go back to the topic at hand. There's another rebellion brewing, and this one is being led by a cabinet member, Andrew Mitchell. He is the Minister for International Development under Boris Johnson. Britain's international aid budget was cut from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5%. That translated into a reduction of £4.6 billion. It was supposed to be a temporary measure to balance the books after the pandemic. But in his autumn statement, Jeremy Hunt kept it at the lower rate. Andrew Mitchell, though, wants the budget restored. He's given an interview to the Sunday Times where he said this. When Labour left office in 2010, Britain was an acknowledged development superpower. When David Cameron was in government, we were definitely a development superpower. Today, let's be frank, we are not a development superpower and we need to win that back. It's impossible to deny that Britain's reputation during recent years internationally has declined. He goes on, short of installing myself in Jeremy Hunt's bedroom and lurking under his bed, I don't think I could have lobbied more trenchantly. Both Jeremy and I voted against the government's decision to cut the 0.7%, so I have always felt throughout these negotiations that he's on our side. But he has to cut the cake, so I accept what he has given us. Now, that interview hasn't gone down well with some Tories. In a Tory WhatsApp group chat leaked to Politico, Tory MP Mark Jenkinson said this. This certainly pushes the boundaries of collective responsibility. Crikey! The more I read it, the worse it gets. I've written articles deliberately critical of the government that are more supportive. I can only assume it wasn't meant to be helpful. I suggest the PM doesn't read it over breakfast. Aaron, this is supposed to be spicy because this guy, Andrew Mitchell, is in cabinet. And I mean, he does seem to be essentially saying the government has the wrong policy on, on development, which is his brief. So does it seem as if the Sunak government could be quite close to imploding at, at any point. It does seem like that, Michael. And, and, and I know this seems like a, a small policy area, and it is. You know, we're talking about development aid as a percentage of GDP. It used to be 0.7%, now it's significantly lower. I think it was called DFID. It's no longer called DFID, isn't it, Michael? It's been changed. So showing my age here, showing how quickly things have changed in British politics over the last several years. It's not the biggest brief, but for a certain kind of Tory voter, it has been totemic. Because there are many, many, many conservative voters, um, members, and indeed members of parliament who would like to 
you know, in the wildest recesses of their honest internal selves and their sort of internal monologues, people like Jacob Rees Morgan and whatnot, they would like there to be no development aid. And so for Andrew Mitchell to go out there and say, actually, we should get back to 0.7%, which was something of a shibboleth around the neck of David Cameron. You know, he, one of the commitments, despite austerity after 2010, was that they would adhere to development aid being 0.7% of GDP, which was initially a new Labour thing. So for Mitchell to say that is a really big statement of intent, I think, from the kind of Cameroon's centrist faction of the party, which is to say, look, we want to go back to the kind of centrist, quote-unquote, sensible politics of 2010 to 2016. Of course, it wasn't that because you had austerity being dished out too, but this is Mitchell's, uh, this is Mitchell's brief. Clearly, there are massive tensions between people like that and then, you know, the more hardcore right-wing Brexity people who've been at the forefront of Conservative Party decision-making in recent years. I think if the Tories were to do that, it would just be incredibly unpopular amongst their base, particularly the new voters that went over to them in 2019. It's one of those policies which, if they were to adopt it, I just, I just can't understand it. You know, it's like Suella Breverman being the Home Secretary talking about, you know, sending people off to Rwanda and how her dream is to see that on the front page of the Daily Mail. And yet she's the Home Secretary overseeing record uh, levels of immigration in the country. Net immigration uh, last year of more than half a million. I have no issue with that. They do. Tories do. And yet they're overseeing political outcomes, which their base get apoplectic about. And I think this would be another one. If you had a Tory government, Returning to development aid being 0.7% of GDP, the Mail, the Express, the Telegraph, all the Brexity right-wing outriders that go on to things like BBC Question Time, Julia Hartley Brewer, Isabel Oakeshott, they would go crazy. They would go crazy. They would see this as another totemic reason why the Conservative Party are no longer Conservatives. So I don't know from that perspective of sort of electoral calculation why they would do it. I don't know why Mitchell is saying this. Maybe you've got a better idea. I think you've articulated that very well. I'm not sure I do have a better idea. I want to instead go to a very interesting comment on planning. Michael RCF with five Swiss francs says, everything is fields because of animal agriculture. If you want rewilding and carbon sequestration, we must dramatically cut animal agriculture. Now, I think that is absolutely right. I mean, if you walk around the English countryside, I feel like we have more fields than are used for animal agriculture. But I absolutely take your point. And especially probably on a global level, the vast swathes of agricultural land that uh, currently, um, you know, new agricultural land, we're cutting down rainforest for agricultural land, and that tends to be for animals. So on dense cities, wild countrysides, and meat grown in labs, maybe somewhere in the suburbs, that would be how I would design all of these things. Aaron, very briefly, because this is very much your your domain. I, 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 I don't think it's accurate to say that all the fields in England are given over to pasture. You know, there are lots of wasted fields it's become, become something of a meme, hasn't it? You'll see a Conservative MP with a local and they'll say, we have saved this field from the menace of, you know, uh, photovoltaic solar cells, which would reduce your energy bills. Instead, we have two kilometers squared of absolutely nothing, <laughs> mud and grass. <laughs> you know, I, 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 it, it is perplexing. You know, it's like, no, like turn it over to pasture, turn it over to PV cells or onshore wind. But yeah, they are strangely obsessed with just having land that doesn't actually have any functional purpose. Again, it's one of the sort of stranger idiosyncrasies of the Conservative Party. It's just like, explain this to me. Like, 
you know, we're journalists, Michael. We, we try and understand opposing points of view. I, I just don't get their infatuation with useless fields. I mean, we do need some fields. Like, I'm so glad that I can walk my dog on a share on Hackney Marshes. Gorge, I think, like, the fact that in London we have these areas of fields is great. But you just don't, you only need a couple of them. All of these people where they're rescuing a field, there's a field next to it as well, you know? So I think a city where you've got this like little sliver of field, gorgeous. But yeah, once you've got four kilometers squared of fields, then you can give up one of those kilometers squared for some houses. Why not? And then, uh. Lincolnshire doesn't need more random fields, you know? <laughs> Sussex doesn't need more random fields. Like do something with it. Give them up. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on to reality television. Matt Hancock has come third in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is being generally lauded as a triumph for the former health secretary. Jim Waterson wrote this in The Guardian. Voting statistics released by ITV on Monday show how Hancock's decision to join the show, driven by a supposed desire to promote dyslexia to a wider audience and a reported £400,000 fee, paid off. In the final, he won 22% of the public vote. While ITV does not reveal how many members of the public take part in I'm a Celebrity polls, the number of people who voted for Hancock is likely to be substantially higher than the number of people who voted in this summer's Tory leadership election. Hundreds of thousands of Britons apparently repeatedly spent 50p on a premium rate phone line or sent text messages to express their support for Hancock. A peak audience of 11.5 million viewers watched Sunday night's final, where the Tory MP wore a snorkel before being submerged in water, covered in eels, and left with an amphibian on his head. While the vote results reveal Hancock was never in with a chance of beating the former England footballer Jill Scott to win the competition, making the final was a triumph in itself for a man predicted to be first out of the jungle. A Hancock won over audience with his stoic approach to bush-tucker trials where contestants have to do things like crawl around in the dark with rats or eat items such as sheep's vaginas. Others were clearly won around by his pleas for forgiveness. This was an exchange early on in the series. I thought you broke lockdown rules. No, I did not. All right, I didn't break any... Ah, you were socialising someone outside of your household. Yeah, that, I didn't break any laws. I, guidance is different, but anyway, I don't want to go... Oh, so there's that. a rule and there's a law. Guidance. The guidance is guidance. guidance. Right. But oh, the problem was it was my guidance. Actually, exactly. Sort of, that's why. So, so why did you, you break your own guidance? Because it's guidance. I, it was a mistake, because I fell in love with somebody and... We and I was taken by love. Well, it's true. But you did it anyway. Well, it was. It, I, that's why I apologise for it. I feel very, you know. But it's that kind of you just do it, and then afterwards it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, because it's bigger than that. It's not like a sort of. Thing it's massively say, bigger sorry, than that. Sorry. I my yeah. aunt died from COVID in yeah. the first wave. Yeah. Right. So we couldn't go to the hospital to go and visit her. Yeah. I had to sit by myself in the church at her funeral. We couldn't hug each other because we were following guidance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I get that you fell in love. I understand all of those things. Yeah. But sorry for a lot of families like mine, it doesn't really cut it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, there you go. And that's, that, that's one of the reasons that I, um, that I regret it as much as I do. Well done. Well done. Do you know what it is, actually? Mm. What I'm really looking for is a bit of forgiveness. That's what I'm really well looking for. Hey. Oh, oh my God, I nearly cried then. So did I. Aaron, should we despair? Has Matt Hancock found the forgiveness he was looking for? Does he deserve it? Or should we make of this spectacle? You know what's really interesting is, 
he asked for forgiveness. He didn't say sorry. There's a big difference. When you, when you ask for forgiveness, you're giving the agency over to the other person, which of course, when you say sorry, you know, like David Baddiel with Jason Lee, oh, I'm sorry. You're not giving the person any agency because they might, they might not forgive you. The forgiveness is there to, is, is theirs to give you, not the other way around. And you can actually see in the, um, the immediate response to, to him saying he's looking for forgiveness. Cause I believe, I think you're, you're probably quite similar, Michael. I believe people are inherently quite good on the whole. And if somebody is clearly showing contrition and they're sorry and they ask your forgiveness, generally speaking, you'll give it to them. And I think that tells you something about human nature. I think that's, that's quite a different thing to him saying, I'm sorry, it won't happen again or something. Of course, look, at the end of the day, it's all a performance. And 11.5 million watching this thing, Michael, is just blows my mind. That's more people watching that show than I think voted for any political party in the 2005 general election. I think. I mean, my God. But I can see why on a human psychological level, the other contestants in that moment responded to him in the way that they did. Yeah, I think it's weird, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I haven't watched the series, so I, I can't speak with too much sort of expertise on what happened. But sort of having spoken to people who have and sort of following the, the responses on, on social media, it seems, I think what's going on here, it, it helps to relate to the public if you fit into a type. And I think Matt Hancock on this show sort of fit into a type that people recognize, you know, awkward guy, a bit embarrassing, but they think ultimately, you know, kind of quirky, we'll let him get by, whatever. That seems to be the attitude to him. I mean, when I, the bits when I was watching it, the few bits where I was watching it, where I found it most sort of disgusting was sort of him describing, I went into politics to work with George Osborne to help him implement austerity. Like it's just, I can't think of a more evil motivation to have got you into politics. I decided I was going to make as a career making people's lives much more miserable. I actually find it much easier to forgive him. Not that I necessarily have, but I find it much more forgivable. Some of the mistakes that were made over the COVID pandemic, because I do think that everyone would have made some mistakes and whatever mistake you made would have had some disastrous consequences. I mean, it was a very, very high stakes time. I think he you know, made some mistakes that were unforgivable, but also it, it doesn't have the same sort of, I don't like to talk in this way, but going into politics to do austerity just strikes me as being like a bit evil, a bit sociopathic. Making some fuck-ups when sort of an unforeseen pandemic comes along, I can see how one might grant forgiveness for that. But it was those, it was that moment early on in the series, I think we did show it on, a, on an episode of this, where I just feel like you, I cannot have any sympathy for anyone or relate to anyone remotely if they went into politics to cut the benefits of disabled people, to bully people, to constantly jump through weird hoops and ending up causing people to starve to death because they can't bear to, to go to the job center anymore. You know, that's the kind of thing I think is completely unforgivable. Also worth noting, you know, Matt Hancock said, the thing I'm apologizing for is getting caught kissing on CCTV. He says the reason I did that is because I was in love. There is no sort of policy area that he has apologized for. The forgiveness is for kissing the girl. You know, so it's, it's not the most humble of, of attitudes. Um, Aaron, any final thoughts on Hancock on I'm a Celebrity? Yeah, your points about him living up to a certain archetype, which is, you know, we've all met somebody like that, not especially impressive or charismatic or handsome or, you know, front foot forward, but kind of 
he's quite disarming, unimpressive. How could somebody like that oversee such incredible pain and suffering? It brings you back to a, a phrase, you know, the banality of evil. Yes, people like Matt Hancock have overseen terrible things, actually. Far worse than what he did, by the way, as uh, Secretary of State for Health. Your point as well about him wanting to enter politics to help George Osborne to implement austerity is so, so important, Michael. You hear it all the time. Conservatives will say, look, nobody goes into politics to be a bad person, just like Labour MPs, just like the Lib Dems or the SNP. We're in it for public service. We're here to serve the public. And I really don't quite understand what that means when you were serving in the Conservative Lib Dem coalition between 2010 and 2015, and we had 150, 160, 170,000 excess deaths as a result of austerity. What was the public service? To who? It wasn't a public service. It was a, a certain faction of the ruling class benefiting from about 20 to 25% of the rest of the country being absolutely screwed. And you were the people administering that and doing the PR and talking to camera and talking to the newspapers and the radio every day so that that stuff could happen. It could get you know, past the British public and some people could make their profits and other people could freeze to death in their homes. So yeah, that idea of public service, I just find so, so puzzling. You know, who are you helping? Who are you serving? It's certainly not the public. It's a very small group of people. But like you say, I think Matt Hancock, in an almost not unique way, because there are other people like him, but he's such a, you know, a, an explicitly mopey, unimpressive, disarming person. I think that's why he gets away with it. Many other conservative MPs, or just MPs generally, they wouldn't have found the same kind of response as he did. The most obvious thing that comes to mind is if George Osborne went on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, I don't think he would have had the same reaction, or David Cameron, actually, because they don't give off that sort of inadequate and kind of know-it vibe that, that Matt Hancock does. Let's move on to our next story. Just Stop Oil have kicked off two more weeks of protests in London. They began in Shepherd's Bush, West London, when 13 activists brought traffic almost to a standstill by slowly marching along a main road. Later, a separate protest took place in central London. Again, the activists slowed traffic by marching from Trafalgar Square to Aldwych. Now, Just Stop Oil are demanding that the government halts all new licences for gas and oil production and exploration in the UK. The group's tactics recently led Tory MP Gareth Johnson to ask Rishi Sunak this question at Prime Minister's Questions. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, last month, Just Stop Oil clambered up the Dartford crossing causing chaos for days. They then attacked artworks, the M25, and anything else to cause misery and mayhem. These people are not protesters, they are criminals. Will the Prime Minister therefore consider making Just Stop Oil a prescribed organisation so that they can be treated as the criminal organisation they actually are. Yeah. <laughs> Just Stop Oil clearly aren't a, a terrorist group that needs prescribing, so it would be pretty bizarre to ban them. But a Times article has revealed that Sunak intends to clamp down on Just Stop Oil, and hard. So it reports this. Number 10 sources say that an incredulous Sunak confronted officials two weeks ago when protesters closed the M25 and said, this is ridiculous. Why are the police not arresting people? 
He has ordered Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, and Chris Philp, the Police Minister, to summon police chiefs and police and crime commissioners to Downing Street this week to press for them to use every power at their disposal to remove protests that are causing mayhem. The police must fully enforce the law, a senior source said. It goes on so far. 1,869 protesters have been arrested since March, including more than 700 members of Just Stop Oil since the beginning of October. But aides say Sunak thinks much more needs to be done to end the rule of the protester once and for all under number 10's Operation Get Tough. The Prime Minister has also called for the guidance issued to frontline officers by the College of Policing to be updated to reflect the additional powers afforded to the police under the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act 2002 and set out clearly how the police should use these powers. Of course, there's no denying that Just Stop Oil's tactics are disruptive, but do their demands warrant their actions? Well, in short, yes. The International Panel on Climate Change's first report was released in 2018. It showed that in order to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius this century, greenhouse gas emissions must reach zero by around 2050. 2050, sorry. That limit of 1.5 degrees warming was agreed by meetings of the G7 and G20 and at COP26 in 2021 and the 2015 Paris Agreement and legally binding international treaty signed in 2015 contains a commitment to limit climate change to, quote, well below two degrees Celsius, as well as to, quote, make efforts to keep it to 1.5 degrees. But to do any of this, we have to make real efforts to limit oil and gas production. And an obvious way to do this would be to commit to opening no, no new oil or gas reserves. This is UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres speaking at the launch of the third IPCC report earlier this year. Climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals. But the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. Investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. In 2021, the International Energy Agency released their roadmap for achieving net zero by 2050. It's a detailed plan of exactly what would need to change around the world to achieve this target. If followed, they say it would mean this. Beyond projects already committed as of 2021, there are no new oil and gas fields approved for development in our pathway, and no new coal mines or mine extensions are required. The unwavering policy focus on climate change in the net zero pathway results in a sharp decline in fossil fuel demand, meaning that the focus for oil and gas producers switches entirely to output and emissions reductions from the operation of existing assets. But it's not just the scientists and climate activists who want to see an end to new fossil fuel exploration. A large proportion of the public backs it too. This graph from the New Statesman is based on a poll conducted in December last year. It shows that 38% of the public either strongly, either support or strongly support a ban on new oil and gas exploration. That's compared to just 19% who either oppose or strongly oppose such a ban. Interestingly, a third of those polled would neither support nor oppose a ban. They haven't formed an opinion just yet. But the government, far from agreeing with Just Stop Oil's aims, are actively increasing the number of new oil fields in the North Sea. Just last month, The Guardian reported this. The North Sea Transition Authority has begun a process to award more than 100 licenses to companies hoping to extract oil and gas in the area. Almost 900 locations are being offered up for exploration. 
The process, which will run until the end of June, is the first since 2019 to 2020. The process was near annual before that, but it was put on hold by the government while it designed a climate compatibility check. However, the check has been criticised because it is only advisory and does not restrict authorities from granting a licence. Um, Aaron, your thoughts on this? The clampdown on Just Stop Oil, will it be successful? But I suppose more importantly, I want to know your opinions. Are Just Stop Oil right? Michael, Just Stop Oil couldn't be more right. Right now as we're talking in the UK, in real time, the, um, the national grid is generating about 58% of UK electricity from gas. So we use gas for two things, to warm our homes, but also to generate electricity. Now, to warm our homes, it's very hard to replace, and it's going to be with us for a while yet. But realistically, we could be at a place where we're using gas to generate between zero and 10% of electricity. Like I say, right now, this moment, 58%. Over the course of the last 12 months, it's about 40%. So we shouldn't be using gas to generate electricity at all. And it is such a precious commodity, like I say, because of heating, that we should be restricting it purely for that. Right now, in terms of overall gas consumption for both heating and electricity, UK imports about half of what it uses because, of course, we have domestic gas as well. We have to import half of it. So if we weren't using gas to generate electricity and we, using, and we were using it just for heating, we probably wouldn't need to import any. Now, this is important for two reasons. First of all, it's very expensive. We're paying for it in foreign currencies, which if you've been paying attention in the last six months, the pound has done pretty badly against the dollar. Secondly, it contributes towards the trade deficit. So this isn't a right, left, Tory, Labour, Green, Lib Dem point. We should not be purchasing gas from overseas to burn for electricity, particularly when offshore wind is producing electricity at one-tenth of the cost of gas. Now, my suspicion is the public has seen these statistics repeatedly about nuclear, offshore wind, of course, onshore wind too, we just don't have much of it. And even solar in some places, not always in the UK, actually a place like California, the cheapest energy anywhere on the planet is solar. All of this stuff is cheaper at generating electricity than fossil fuels. And I think actually the public is far, far, far ahead on this than what the political class and the sort of right-wing media like to think. And I think that's clear there in the data in that chart, Michael. That doesn't mean they've decisively given up on fossil fuels. There's lots of don't knows. But I think where the public is at is we know fossil fuels aren't the future. We know that renewables and the arguments for them don't just revolve around climate change, but actually they're abundant and they're increasingly cheap. And we know that the future isn't going to look like the past. And what Just Stop Oil are doing when they come in and intervening in the public debate in the way that they are, is they're trying to accelerate all of this. My only criticism of Just Stop Oil, not of them, but of the, the political movement more generally, is that it should have been there 15 years ago. You know, when we had Nick Clegg in 2010 saying we're not going to build new nuclear power stations, that's exactly what we should have been doing. All of our electricity in this country should be coming from wind, solar, a bit of biomass and nuclear. And, and it's not. And that's a political choice. This could have been reversed not 30, 40, 50 years ago. In 2010, if we'd made different decisions, we would be in a totally different place today. And I think Just Stop Oil, doing what they're doing, hopefully, put us in a much better place by 2030. Straight on. 
We've got a bit of good news for you. The Communication Workers Union appears to have won its dispute with BT over pay and conditions. The union has recommended their members accept a new offer of a £1,500 permanent cost of living pay rise. If they accept it, that increase would go to everyone who earns £50,000 or less. The Guardian has reported this. The deal means that all of BT's approximately 58,000 frontline workers, including call centre staff and engineers, will benefit, as will about half of the managers in its UK operation. The company, which said that overall 85% of its UK-based staff would benefit from the cost of living pay rise, employs about 100,000 staff in total. The new pay rise is on top of the £1,500 that was awarded to all staff in April. The union said that the two pay rises mean that staff will be between 6% and 16% better off, with a typical employee receiving 9% more pay. Andy Kerr, Deputy General Secretary of the CWU, said this, I wish to pay tribute to our members for coming out to strike in such serious numbers. Their determination has moved BT into a position where they could no longer ignore the case for a consolidated pay rise. Without such unity, the company would have offered a cost of living bung at the very best. Aaron, your quick comments on this. I know you've been covering CWU strikes quite a lot this year. Um, what do you make of this? Well, it's a shame it's quick because uh, it's a great story. We don't have enough good stories to talk about in the UK at the moment. But it is fantastic. Just to show you how bad BT are, particularly on their call centre workers, I think the average call centre worker with BT was earning in low 20s, about 20,000, 21,000, 22,000. You also had on strike the engineers obviously go out and fix you know, critical infrastructure when it comes to the internet in this country. The call centre workers are on significantly less. Low 20s, engineers on about... 35-ish. In the call centers, Michael, there were food banks. You know, when you're an employer and you have to set up food banks in the place of work where you're employing people, probably a hint, you give them pay rise. So this is fantastic news, but it does beg questions, Michael. When you have a company like BT, which I think last year, after tax, the best of my recollection, made about 700 million pound profit. When it takes industrial action and public shaming of the kind that the CWU have executed, what does it say about BT? You make those kinds of profits, you give out huge dividends. Actually, I think 700 million may have been the dividend. The profits may have been even more. You have those numbers, and yet actually, you're perfectly happy for your staff, without which your business wouldn't even function, to use food banks. So obviously, it's fantastic. It shows the value of um, industrial action and strikes. More workers should use those tools. But you don't get something for nothing from the kind of boardroom bullshitters that we see at BT and elsewhere, like, of course, Royal Mail. You have to fight for every last penny. Well done. What a great note to end tonight's show. Aaron, it's been a joy being joined by you on a Monday evening. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. I'll be back next Monday, I believe, I think. So look forward to that. Whoever turns up on the night, I'm always delighted to see them. I'm, I need to look at our schedule, I think, so I know who I've got coming up. Thank you, everyone, for your Super Chats tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm, so make sure to hit subscribe if you haven't already. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.